from Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. Today on the show, we're continuing our special series, Institutional Shift. We're looking at the world's largest pools of capital, pension and sovereign wealth funds, endowments, and insurance companies. Our guide through this landscape is Dave Chen, CEO of Equilibrium Capital. Dave joins David Bank, Impact Alpha's editor and CEO, to follow the money as institutional investors tilt toward impact. Let's jump right into their conversation. I'm here with Dave Chen of Equilibrium Capital in your San Francisco offices again. Dave, this is our third podcast of 2019, Institutional Shift. Welcome back to Impact Alpha's Return on Investments podcast. Thank you so much. You've been here and there and everywhere since I saw you. I'm now to the point where I uh, just do round-the-world trips. You have a big carbon footprint to offset from your air travel. Yeah, unfortunately, that's not as funny as it sounds. I think that uh, we've always joked that uh, we burn a lot of carbon just to go to you know places like Bali and uh, Lake Como to, uh, to save the world. But um, that being said, I, I will tell you that the, the most recent act... Uh, well, that's, change, not, that's not where you went. No, but the recent change <laughs> that's happened with our uh, Nordic LPs is that they are, uh, in the last few months, they have started asking us very serious questions about our travel. Like, why do we have to actually meet? Can't we do this on video call or something? Well, we're still in that, that gross irony phase of it, which is that they want to see us, okay? <laughs> but they are asking us about our carbon travel footprint. All right, well, that, leaving that aside for the moment, just give us the, 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 the top 10 spots you've been in the last week, a couple of weeks. That's yeah, not worth it. It's, it's way too many. All right, just regions of the world. All right, so I've been, uh, I've been uh, let's see, Asia. Uh, I've been uh, to the Middle East. I've been to uh, Europe, and I've uh, uh, round-tripped back to Chicago. And then last week. And then last week. And you got week, out to Moline. Yes, last week, I think uh, my trip to Moline was probably one of the most uh, impactful uh, trips. And, and uh, I, I, was a, I was a guest of John Deere. And as some of uh, our listeners know, uh, uh, we do a lot of investing and uh, in the area of sustainable agriculture and food. So going out and visiting with John Deere uh, seems to make all the sense in the world. But but I had the the, the really just, just to be clear for anybody who's not hasn't seen a John Deere tractor and grow up with a, their, their toy tractor. John Deere is the biggest or one of the biggest farm yeah. equipment makers in the world um, and supplies every kind of combine and tractor and system for farmers. Yes, and so they are in uh, 180 countries around the world. They R&D and, and product develop and have presence in, I think, 40 countries around the world. Uh, it's about a $40 billion size uh, global company. And so I'll tell you that the reason that it was so impactful uh, to me was that I had access to their CEO, their CTO, uh, their VPs of, of engineering and innovation, and I also had an opportunity to sit down with the, the head of Deere Finance, as well as their investor relations. And so I got the full gamut of looking at, in, in many ways, the productization of sustainability is it, sort of how I would term my day. So John Deere is trying to get on top of the trends and the needs of the farmers who are their customers. Yeah, I, we had a really open discussion, and we were able to. You have to put this in perspective, right? Um, their their customer is a farmer, right? And you know how here in uh, the United States, uh, farmers being somewhat conservative, and then the whole take on climate change. So I asked some pretty blunt, indelicate questions about 
does how does John Deere deal with climate change, and how does John Deere deal with organic agriculture and sustainable regenerative agriculture, things like that? And I and I think I was you know incredibly shocked by the uh, not just um, you, you uh, thought they would say ah that's for hippies. You know, I think we're at a stage now where you can't do that. But I was shocked at how uh, uh, advanced they were. Not so much in thinking, but in actually doing. So let me give you a couple of examples. I, I started with, hey, um, do you guys think the climate is really changing? Their uh, chief uh, economist and now advisor to the chairman uh, answered, um, yeah, I ask that question in every country and every visit that we make. And we would say that without a doubt that the climate has shifted and that uh, both harvest windows have narrowed and that planting windows have narrowed. And we are wrestling with the implications of that. And that literally means fewer days to get the plants in the ground and fewer days to get them Absolutely. harvested. Which means, well, what do you do? Uh, that has implications for the availability of equipment. And since almost all the John Deere stuff is quote unquote owned, what does that mean for availability? What does that mean for the speed that you can uh, plow or to operate your tractor? All right, because you, one way to deal with a, with a collapse of a four-week planting cycle down to two weeks is it could dry faster. And so, so, so that led us into the whole conversation about the kinds of things that they were doing from a technology implementation, uh, uh, computer controlling of everything from seed depth, uh, uh, the soil moisture, et cetera, uh, uh, and the implementation of electrification of their equipment. So turning their equipment into electric, uh, not because of necessary of low carbon, but in this case because of the ability to control electric motors, which then also has an implication for the use of diesel and, and, and how they think about the efficiency of the diesel that they do use to all the way to they do have a tractor that now is up to about three hours of operating between charges. So, so they're thinking about the whole spectrum of, well, if climate is changing, how does our business model and how does our equipment model have to adapt to what is becoming a, a, a reality. But do they go all the way down into, you know, soil health as a way to sequester carbon and also improve yields and also reduce runoff and be, you know, a sort of regenerative, holistic, biodynamic farmer? Well, bi biodynamic is always a little bit different. Okay, that, leave that, biodynamic out so, so let's leave biodynamics out of it. But there's a, there's a proposition. You've helped educate me on this. There's a proposition where you do that kind of uh, smart farming, it's actually better economics as well. That, that was the shock, right? Which is, that was another question, line of questioning that I had. And, um, and they're implementing technologies that, 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 that execute to that, right? So, for example, uh, no-till and low-till, right? As a way of continuing to foster organic matter in the soil. Uh, the idea of, for example, uh, reducing pesticides and herbicide consumption by using technology. So uh, the use of, of expert system AI-driven cameras attached to a very high-tech nozzle that they built with proprietary research inside the, the, the firm to be able to then not just see uh, uh, the weed, but now direct the nozzle to only shoot uh, herbicide or fertilizer towards the exact target. It gets even more sophisticated than that. If I want to stop tilling uh, and I want to go to greater and greater either organic practices or regenerative, I want to stop spraying anything. Forget, forget toxic things like maybe Roundup. 
And so this is a this is really interesting. I mean, we've been doing GPS-driven straight row plowing now for, for a couple of decades. Now the accuracy and then the accuracy of the equipment and the whole electrification where you can actually now control the equipment much, much with greater granularity. You put that together with the ability for a computer now to execute tens of thousands of decisions per minute. What that means now is that you can actually plant on an XY grid. So every seed is not just aligned on straight rows. You're now planting seeds on an XY grid. So they're using an old, old technique that allowed farmers to, to, to basically plow in both directions. So now if you want to uh, use a little bit of, let's say, Roundup, you can at least use the, uh, the AI-driven camera and nozzle to, to, to dramatically, like 90%, 95% reduce the amount that you spray. And the selling proposition is, is twofold. One, do you want to put this stuff in your soil or do you just want to kill the plant? And number two, you can reduce your bill from, you know, a couple hundred thousand bucks down to 10000 or $20,000. Your roundup bill. Yes. All right. And the XY bi-directional plowing allows you basically to plow in one direction, get the weed, and plow in the other direction and get the weed. All right. So these are fascinating things. And then, so then it gets... So, 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 so better soil, less runoff, lower... Impact. Uh, low, lower low, impact. Lower cost for your... Lower for your, input. Lower cost. So things that used to be, we used to be told, oh, that's too expensive, or that's going to cut our yield, or that's going to, or that can't be done, or it's impractical. Technology and economics and maybe yep. the climate imperative pushing yep. those things into mainstream. Yeah, and and I think, you know, one of the things that I always like to say is is and we actually had a really good conversation about this at Deer was, a lot of times we tend to want to focus on the answer. And oftentimes, the brilliance comes from framing the question. And, and, and I think, you know, people are good problem solvers if they know what the right problem is that they're trying to solve. And, and I think Deere is a great example of, of my day at Deere was um, they're defining the kinds of problems that they have to go solve. And now they're looking at, well, are there solutions to it? And how do we put these pieces together? And what are, what are the implications then for our business, our business model? Um, and, uh, and, and you're seeing, what, what I find interesting is, this is sustainability not as a series of white papers or as a series of marketing. It's now being productized. And in many ways, it's the technology cost curve that's allowing them to actually productize and to to find the answers for the right questions. Well, and also the other word, productize and operationalize. Yes. Because it's not just a bunch of white papers, neither is it just a fun asset management fundraising marketing ploy to, to make people feel better. It's actually in the real operations of a company lowering cost and presumably raising revenues. It, um, it, it leads to an, a broader question that goes well beyond Deere, and, and, and um, I think this is also new since our uh, last chat was the business roundtable statement from 181 uh, CEOs about purpose of the corporation, um, and and it was seen as you know in kind of an ideological terms, right? Uh, end of end of the reign of shareholder primacy and the beginning of the era of, of stakeholder capitalism. But I think if if I get what you're saying, is it is it too much to say that 
actually understanding those stakeholders. I mean, farmers are stakeholders. Understanding the stakeholders actually is a business value generator. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And when that letter came out, I, 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 and you probably got this too from a number of your, of your friends uh, and respected colleagues, you know, one of the responses was, hey, this is just greenwashing. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and for those listeners that have had the privilege of, of you know, being in large public companies at senior levels or being on the board of directors of, of public companies, you realize that that CEO couldn't, didn't have the right to just sign that letter. They, they, they likely went through uh, internal general counsel. They likely went to external counsel. Uh, because to sign that letter uh, and, and even get anywhere near the whiff of shareholder supremacy took authorization to, to, to do that because it might expose the company to risk. Right? To empower stakeholders might give them a claim, literally a legal liability kind of claim that could... Or that you were bucking 20-some-odd years of, of, of court case endorsement of shareholder primacy. All right. So, so you needed some lawyer to tell you you could do uh, there's this. No, there's no question that, 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 that each of those 180-some-odd uh, CEOs went through internal, they went through external, and I bet you it took at least two board meetings to have this conversation. Which is why they had never wanted to say it before. So, that, so then the question is, I asked my friends that, that wanted to give the snarky comment, I said, well, you know, the more important question is, is actually why did they do it and why now? And, and I think that that's worth poking at. Because to say that they're greenwashing is actually too simple because that letter actually said a lot more from a corporate risk exposure standpoint um, than, than it could have been worth in PR. All right? and, and so I think that in some ways, I think these CEOs are starting to realize that they're being asked, I think, two questions now. What do my customers need as, as many of these issues, these social and environmental issues become apparent. And I think that, that the second question they're starting to be asked is, what are my stakeholders going to ask of me? All right. and, 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 and those are two very different questions. One is about what their customer's product, we just got done talking about John Deere, what their product or utilization of their product and services are going to be requiring of them uh, from a new product standpoint, new service offering. That was the shocker at Deere. The second question is, what are, what are in fact, the shareholders, but other stakeholders that I have uh, going to be asking of me? And, and it was interesting. I'll, I'll dovetail back to the, the, the Deere conversation. They're IR folks. I, I asked them, how, how recent has this been? And they came back with a couple of very interesting perspectives that it's really within the last year, year and a half, where all of a sudden it toggled from very bespoke fund managers that were focused on ESG or sustainability that would be asking these kinds of questions to about a year and a half to somewhere in that six-month window, um, everybody. It just became everybody. Right. All right. And, you know, these are IR professionals, so they're in the market talking to fund managers, asset owners, shareholders every day. Their sense was it just toggled over, all right? The second thing is 
they're finding that there's whole new classes of shareholders now and fund managers that are asking them these questions. And they're asking it in the, in the context of hidden sustainability value. Sustainability value that the company has not yet realized. Things they're already doing that they should get more credit for. As well as possibly hidden unsustainability risks. Well, that's the easy one, okay? Assessing what, you know, what landmines are in the mining company. So that's where we've right. been at the last few years. Yeah, yeah. The risks. So risks. now you're saying yeah. so now, get credit for what you're doing right. Oh, yeah. So now, now there's a whole bunch of, of fund managers that are asking, what's sustainability value add and future-proofing value add is actually hidden inside your company that hasn't been well understood yet. So what I just said was basically the equivalent of the, uh, you know, the value-based uh, investor, right? which is I'm looking for something that not everyone understands. Right? And, and that's been fascinating. Right? I was just with a fund manager the other day, and he's created a fund that, uh, I mean, he's been an institutional investor for years, and, uh, and, uh, and he's now creating a fund with the investment thesis that he wants to go target companies that are sort of very not, very clearly not ESG and very clearly not sustainable, but that have the opportunity to compete in sustainability sectors and be an activist uh, shareholder, replace the management team or back great management teams that see this because he thinks these are the hidden gems that, that again, in a low-carbon world or in a highly sustainable world or in a world that is threatened with real climate shifts with implications for assets and products and strategies, how can I get a leg up on somebody? Is this just like declaring something that never had gluten in it anyway to be a gluten-free product? I mean, you're just, you're just no. rebranding? No. No, there's something else going on, and that is that um, these, some of these sustainability fund managers are looking at companies like, like, like Deere and saying, um, your sustainability value add and competitive advantage has not been priced into your stock. That the, the fact that you can do farming in a climate chaotic environment is going to make you more competitive and redound to your future uh, potential when the, the, when the conditions that you're, optim you're optimized for become more, more common. As the climate gets worse, your competitive advantage gets actually bigger and bigger. You've done this a time or two. <laughs> um, but, but so the... So, so then you get into an interesting situation where the, uh, the, the, the leaders in this field who, who actually are optimized for this, whether it's low water, yep. low, low, you know, high carbon, yep. you know, uh, uh, want to drive the world towards those sustainability solutions because they have those sustainability solutions. So there's kind of a, starts to become a, an advocacy lobbying aspect to this, which is, but which you, you, you shrug, but it's actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know that. You, you, because, it's, because it's obvious to you. But it's not obvious, I think, to many listeners and certainly out, out in the world that many big corporations actually want there to be a, 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 a climate action mandate to keep 
you know, temperatures uh, below, you know, rising from below two, well, two well, degrees or one and a half. Right? Look, look at the California, look, look at the whole California CARB, uh, uh, California Air Resource Board uh, issue with the Trump administration, right? And, and, and look at the, 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 effectively what all the car companies said was, well, we don't need your help, you know. To the Trump, to administration. Trump administration. We're not, which is, we're, not, we're not looking to be relieved of these obligations because we actually like these obligations because that's where we have to go anywhere. We have to go anywhere, right? And frankly, if you're going to sell a car in China, it, it, in some ways it doesn't matter what the, what the Trump administration says. It matters as much about what the Chinese government is edicting for what goes on their roads. And also, you'd rather have a regulation to make everybody have to do it so you're not any disadvantaged by having to put your neck out. Yeah, but the reality is we're in a global market. You know, maybe maybe we're on a next chapter of the world, but until that happens, you know, and 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 so I, I think what we're starting to watch is this. There, you know, the 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 world of foundations and NGOs use this term, the theory of change, and and sometimes when you're around groups, they have a theory of change that says that we need to reach consensus. All right. And, and that, that we're trying to convince a lot of folks that this is the right direction. There's another theory of change, which, um, and, and, and I think part of the reason I, I believe so much in this theory of change is that I got to watch it happen every seven years or so in, uh, in high tech. And, and I grew up in high tech. And, and the, the advantage of growing up in high tech is that we have very fast market cycles. Forget product cycles, we have very fast market cycles. And, and one of the things that you observe is that early on in, the, uh, in any technology, um, there's truly a thing, a market segment called the early adopter. And there's truly a segment that is the early majority. And they behave very differently. And, uh, and if you try to convince the early majority that this widget that you've come up with is really cool, you're probably dead because they don't want to be convinced. And, and these things have a timing that, 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 that go along with it. And so the theory of change says, oh, we have to convince everybody. The theory of technology adoption curves would say, no, you got to convince the first group and the rest of the people, you know, maybe they become extinct, all right? Well, or they split. Some of them flip and become sort of late adopters or early majority, whatever yeah. the, that term is, and some of them become extinct. Right. And and so so so, so you split so you split the old market, grab the high growth part of it, yep, and the rest of it is kind of the long tail legacy infrastructure that has to just sort of waste away. And and I think this whole sustainability issue that we're going to watch and that we are watching and and is that some companies are going to get a head start on this. Uh, look, clearly Tesla is an example of that, right? And 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 look when when the when the when the first cars came out, especially the sports car, you know, there were a lot of eye rolls. There were probably 99 eye rolls for everybody that actually bought one of the things. Uh, there was probably 99,000 eye rolls for everyone, right? The Model S comes out, yeah, there's five people out of 100 that now buy it, and there's still 95 eye rolls, right? The Model 3 comes out, now there's 10 people, 15 people and 85 eye rolls. But, but the 85 are no longer rolling their eyes. There's They're 40 right. or 50 that are saying, well, I just want to make sure the battery lasts long enough. But the next one's going to be this. And then there's 30 or so that are like still eye rolling. So now this is a very different, this is a very different 
objection. It's no longer eye rolls. It's like, well, hey, look, you know, it's about battery life or whatever, right? So, so, so we're watching, we're watching a, a market perception and demographic shift changing. Same thing's happening with corporations. All right, there's somebody who's going to be the last. You know, we joke about this. Well, buggy whips, right? And 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 automobiles. Well, there were the last few buggy whip companies, right? And then there were a bunch that went out of business. And there's probably some that had the wherewithal to transition. I don't know. So 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 I think that the theory of change is you're not going to get everybody, and you don't have enough calories and time to get everybody when they don't believe, and 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 you just got to watch the first wave of those that are in fact driving driving towards it. Well, I think you're exactly right. And the, and to, but to even make it more pointed, the, the first folks to get out there, like Tesla's a perfect example, the thing is too expensive and, and you say sure. everybody eye rolls, whatever. And so they, 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 they don't get, quote, rewarded for their better product that's more yeah. futuristic. They actually, you know, get punished. They, they, they pay they, a penalty for the privilege. And then something happens in the marketplace, perception, adoption, costs come down, cost curve, and all of a sudden, and then you say maybe risks become more apparent or climate change, you know, realities become more apparent, then all of a sudden they start to get rewarded, and once that happens, the flip happens very quickly. Okay, look at, look at corporate green bonds, okay, and uh, uh, a few years ago, you had to explain what it was. The corporate, uh, the, the, the banks and I-banks that were uh, the service providers for the green bonds were still trying to understand what it was. Pepsi just did one. Okay. But, and, and look at the first wave of early green bonds. It was Toyota and Apple did one that was a, a sleeve inside their corporate debt offering. And that was all about four or five years ago. Today, uh, again, some of the companies that we're interfacing with, uh, their, their IR and their treasury group would tell you that you know, every bank is now having a conversation with them about a green bond. Now, is this good? Look, there's always bad actors, and there's always people that will take advantage of things. But in, in the grand scheme of things, I think this is incredibly positive. Right? We've reduced the cost of capital required to make the green transition in all sorts of ways. Sustainability-linked loans, transition bonds, green bonds, resilience bonds. You know, and... and, and Look, I, 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 I think we are always trying to uh, create solutions in our own fund management activity at Equilibrium to find the opportunities for, for scale. And so we tend to always have a scale lens on. And, and maybe that leads me to the other sort of very impactful conversation that I've had in the last couple, three weeks. We, we had the luxury of uh, and the privilege of inviting uh, Hiro Mizuno, the, the chief investment officer of Japan's GPIF, which is about a $1.6, $1.7 trillion pool of, of capital as part of the Japanese pension system. We've been, we've been tracking Hiro Mizuno for, for a few months now, partly at your suggestion, but um, he's a, a terrifically interesting guy. So it's a, it's a, just as you say, it's not only the largest pension fund in the world, 1.6 or $7 trillion, it's also got a 100-year time horizon yeah. to be able to backstop the Japanese retirement system when the demographic curves uh, cross and they no longer have enough workers and a lot of retirees and whatnot. So it's the definition of long-term thinking. Yeah, it is. And, and in that way, they share many of the same 
obligations or, 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 or mission as like the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. And there's two concepts that, that I think that at the scale that he's at, and this gets back to the whole adoption curve, this gets back to who's an innovator and a, and, uh, and a revolutionary, and then when do the big trucks kind of come in? And, uh, and, and it's not all simple, glib greenwashing. It's when does this redefine the conversation? And, and, and with Hiro Mizuno, and frankly, BlackRock was on this page, I think, as much as six years ago. And, and it's taken them a very different trajectory, frankly, than, than Hero. And Hero's been on this page for about, I think, three, four years. I, I reminded Hero. So we got him to go to Kellogg and to give a talk. And then the other thing that... To the Kellogg School of Management at, at Northwestern, where you're very active as a faculty member. And, and... Thank you. Yes, that is all true. And, uh, and, but the other thing that we did inviting him to Kellogg was to have him do a roundtable with finance faculty. All right. and, 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 and I reminded Hero when, when we kicked off the conversation, I said, do you remember, because one of the faculty asked him, how did you get started? And I said, do you remember at the Milken Global Conference, you were on a plain vanilla big CIO panel. It wasn't about climate. It wasn't about sustainability. But one of the questions towards about the latter third of the panel and, and, and there's a video of this somewhere, is uh, they asked about climate change. And I don't think you were prepared for the answer because you looked very candid, and you gave a very Japanese Zen-like answer. You said, hmm, you have to ask, what good is a pension check when it's 117 degrees Fahrenheit outside? And he laughed when I said that. He said, that's exactly right. I was not. And it, I just sort of gave an off-the-cuff answer. And, and then I went back home, and it really started to crystallize in his mind that because you're $1.7 trillion, and this gets into your finance theory, you're too big to uh, beat the market. You can't hedge the market. You are the market. You are a universal owner in the sense that you own the universe. And that's when he really took that term and started to ask, beyond being a label of I'm big and important, what does that really mean? And, 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 he, and he offers up this thing where he says, part of my compensation at the time was that I beat the Japanese benchmark, but I own 10% of the Japanese equities market. So how does that work? He is the benchmark that he's also trying to beat. Right. And so it's, it gets into the hall of mirrors where you're looking into the mirror, you know. And, and, and so, so he has been pushing this issue of what are the, what are the unique aspects of being a universal owner and that's gotten him to the next step, which is um, uh, long tail risk. And, uh, and as a universal owner, what are the long tail risks that I have to be aware of? And that's the framing of, of that's how he frames, in many ways, ESG and climate as, and, and, as, as long tail risks that if he doesn't fully understand how to risk manage that, and again, this is the hall of mirrors, you can't risk manage it because he represents the market Right? You can't hedge it because you are so big. Right? So, so then, then he came on to this, well, does it also mean then that this concept that he has of quality beta? And beta is the market's rate of return right? uh, or the, or the, or for each of the risk categories or asset categories. And so... Wait, let's just stop there because we, we're impact alpha. 
impact beta and smart beta is a function of the of the of the risk mitigation and the volatility in a sense, right? So so alpha is the is the gain above the market, and that's what a lot of active managers and we even though we're in the real assets, alt assets categories, we would consider ourselves to be trying to find ways of creating the opportunity to create alpha, which is the returns that are over the market benchmark. Okay? Remember, beta is not zero. Beta is what the market rate of return is, okay? or what the benchmark rate. Right? So, so he's trying to ask the question now of what is quality beta? And, and can you, in fact, uh, influence the market uh, to be a stronger and more resilient market so that it absorbs shocks and that it potentially has ways of dealing with these kind of long-tail risks. So he wants the whole market to be resilient because he is, in fact, the whole market. Right. Now, let's just wrap all these aspects together because one of the interesting things is you've actually hit three different levels of kind of the uh, financial market. So Hiro Mizuno... Um, uh, uh, one of the largest asset owners, mm -hmm. and he employs or uh, is, a, is a client of many of the largest asset managers, BlackRock, Goldman, yep. um, and those asset managers invest uh, partly through passive indexes and whatnot, but they invest in corporate entities. I think John Deere actually may be private company, um, but John, John Deere's public, okay. $40 billion in revenue. Okay, so they invest in companies like John Deere and, and others. Um, and now you have an asset owner saying we have sustainability, we have systemic risks, including climate and, 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 and other things. We have uh, asset managers like BlackRock saying companies have to have a purpose. We now have corporate CEOs like the Business Roundtable uh, saying uh, we have uh, uh, obligations to many stakeholders. We have to embed sustainability into everything we do. I think it was one of the planks of that pledge. And you've got actually CEOs. Um, you know, operationalizing it down to the level of their products and their customers. So there is now, it's not maybe every company, it's not every asset owner, it's not every asset manager, but theory, there's now theory a... Theory of change says you don't have to have them all. You don't have, that's, that's the wrap-up. So you don't need to have them all, you just need to have the best, the most successful, the smartest. And we the have now, adopters. and we have, no, we, I think we have, I think we flipped the switch. I don't think it's the early adopters anymore. Okay. It's now uh, the leading companies are, 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 are jumping on. So I think we have hit the early majority. All right. All right. So listeners of this podcast have heard it here that that fabled inflection point, that, 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 that tipping point that we've all been waiting for, uh, we, when we look back, we'll find it already occurred. And I think the, I don't know how to use the word, the warning shot for the early pioneers in the sector is to understand that that's in fact happening and now going into 2020 what does their strategy have to be now that it's not about pushing that there may now be pull and that there may now be larger competitors that are all moving in and what do you do now for your next chapter that sounds like a perfect setup for the next episode of Institutional Shift. Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. It's a real privilege. That's going to do it for this episode of Returns and Investment, part of the Institutional Shift special series. Thanks to Dave Chen of Equilibrium Capital and David Bank of Impact Alpha for that great conversation. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. 
This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha, providing news and insights for those working to build an inclusive and prosperous future. Find us at impactalpha.com and on Twitter at impactalpha. If you like this podcast, consider telling just two other people about it. You can also subscribe and leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. If you don't like the podcast, maybe keep it to yourself. Just kidding. We love your feedback. Drop us an email at editor at impactalpha.com. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in some sense of the word next time.